0: Another series of Bring Back V10s is drawing to a close, but as always, we're sending you off with two episodes devoted to answering your questions about anything to do with F1 in the V10 era. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question by using the hashtag Bring Back V10s on Twitter, and so many of you made good use of our new email address. So thanks for getting in touch with Bring Back V10s at the We've also, for the first time, been able to take questions from the Race Members Club, and we'll stick a few more of those in a bonus episode after the series so we can get through some more of them for you. And of course, we're incredibly grateful to the hundreds of you who have now left us five-star podcast reviews. Those are still coming in, so thank you to Rudy, Team Trev, F1 Superfan, Goddard's 92 and Ross F1 for some of our latest reviews. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, for the first of our finale episodes We have Gary Anderson and Mark Hughes. And gents, I can tell you that you're becoming an in-demand partnership in these end-of-series episodes as quite a few of the questions we receive are now directed at one or both of you specifically. As always, at the end of the series, there's no traditional opening question, but you've both seen the list that we're tackling today. So Gary, as usual, there's a smattering of Jordan-related questions for you, but is there a, a question that stands out in particular that you're looking forward to?
1: Um, I think it's a bit about the one nine four. um that was a, a car that was very sort of close to my heart, I suppose you might call it, in a very, very difficult year. Um so yeah, that the one nine four would be a nice would be a nice question to get to.
0: And Mark, anything stand out for you?
2: Yeah, I like the um the, the question asked um by uh, Tar- Tarun Lutra, I think is is the pronunciation about M- Michael and Mika.
0: Um, I quite like that uh, getting into that. Yeah, that's good. I'm looking forward to that one. As well, so we'll we'll get on the uh, we'll get on with the questions because we're being a bit ambitious here and uh, trying to cram in a few more than we usually do. Chris Parrott asks, could you explain the loophole like teams like Williams and Jordan exploited to avoid the ugly cockpit protection deployed by other teams in 1996, and what advantages did it give them? Well, lucky for us, the man who came up with those cockpit sides for Jordan is here. So, Gary, the Jordan One Nine Six, of course, one of your cars. What was the loophole in the rules here and what was the process at Jordan for realising you could do this?
1: Well, yeah, obviously, you know, the regulations were changing all the time safety wise. And um, I was at a meeting in, in, uh, in London with the FIA when this was being discussed. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the big team people, um, you read their faces. And I'm talking here, uh, you know, Patrick Heads and Ross Brawns and whoever. You read their faces as these things are being you know, put forward, and you think, are they seeing? Are they seeing what's supposed to be happening here? And I was always somebody that sort of try to look behind the request to to see if I could find a solution to it as quickly as I could. And I remember that one actually phoning up a, a guy called John McQuillum, who who was our composite specialist at that point in time in Jordan, and uh, and saying to him, "What do you think if we tried this? You know, could be could you lay that out and see if it makes sense? Because I'm very happy to, I was very happy to accept it as, as normal, um, as long as others looked confused and we thought, we thought we could find a solution. And I must admit that, that, uh, that Ross and Patrick at that point in time, both did look confused, but obviously Williams did find a solution to it. Um, through Adrian, I suppose it was, um, and Ferrari never found a solution to it. We used to call their car the skip because of the cockpit section of it. it just <laughs> did look like a skip, um. So yeah, the, the solution we found really was to reverse the, the the rollover bar. Now there was a height for the rollover bar, and there's a line from the the rollover bar uh, upper rear upper one to the to the front roll bar that clears has to clear the driver's helmet. Um, so we were able to re- reverse our rollover bar uh, and then put a fairing on the front of it to bring it forward, i.e., to the normal location of the air intake to the driver's helmet. And because of that, then the the headrest was offset from that parallel line. So the, the back of the line, the main rollover bar was, uh, was further back, was further rearwards. So that was how we complied with it. Then obviously the engine cover took off, off from there, but it was a, it was a bit of a sad thing for me to be honest, because, you know, we, we did it, um, obviously structurally, it was exactly the same. The only thing would be the, 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 the pointy part of the rollover bar was further away from the driver's helmet and, uh. When we went to, to the first race in Australia, we had lots of, sort of, uh, complaints about it, and Ross Braun actually, vocally, I think, reported to some of the media, mainly the the, the, the press, the daily press, that uh, Gary Anderson had built a, a, a death trap for, for um, Martin Brundle, and um, I didn't think that was very fair in a in a, in a formula or in a sport where you know, you're only that far away from, at that time, you're only that far away from potentially a huge accident which could end up in the death of a driver. And it's something that I've always sort of um, respected <clears throat> was, you know, safety. And I, I did consult with, with Ross a few times about that, especially at our next FIA meeting and, and told him what I thought of him and acted opening his mouth and, and saying something about it.
0: And of course, as we'll come to in a bit, because there is a question about it, uh, the, the safety of that Jordan was, was put to the test uh, that week weekend.
1: Yeah, it was put to the test. And, and, you know, it's always dramatic because it could have ended up in a very different set of circumstances. But as for the rollover bar, there was no safety safety uh, problems. It basically had the rollover bar reversed, so it got the cockpit sides down. And in, in reality, you know, never forget the aesthetics of it. The driver's helmet, the safety was still there with the headrest each side of it. Um The cockpit sides were higher. Um It was a much better aesthetically looking piece of kit than the uh, Ferrari's skip.
0: Yeah, I mean, we discussed the 96 Ferrari earlier in this series and, and revisited some comments from Eddie Irvine, who I think they were pretty much his words when, when he saw it uh, unveiled. And uh, just on that Ferrari, John Barnard has said that uh, his aerodynamicists at Ferrari at the time basically thought that the higher you went with the sides, the cleaner the aero you would have. And John has accepted that he should have been paying much more attention to the work they were doing in the wind tunnel and the, the results they were getting. Uh, but let's move on. We've got a question from Adam who asks, uh, he says, the, the Bridgestone Michelin tyre war is often talked about, but what about Goodyear versus Bridgestone? What led to Goodyear's departure? How much notice were the teams given? And as McLaren jumped to Bridgestone first, how did Ferrari end up closer with them than McLaren? I'll quickly answer on the notice the teams were given, as one thing I can slot in is that uh, Goodyear didn't give the teams the the contractual notice they were obliged to, which is why uh, McLaren and Benetton were able to jump ship early for 98. Uh, But Mark... You're always, you've always been a fan of, of Tire Wars. I think when we've discussed in the past rules we should bring back, you've said that you'd like to see it come back again. You covered the Michelin Bridgestone years in, in great depth. What did you make of the two years we had of Goodyear versus Bridgestone? And do you think that some competition coming in perhaps gave Goodyear a bit of a wake-up call after they'd seen Pirelli off in the early 90s and then had it all to themselves?
2: Yeah, I got the impression that, I'm, I mean, in, give you some background, Goodyear was always the dependable supply, it would supply the whole field if necessary, and very often did. It was the fallback, and it carried F1 pretty much single-handedly, both before Mitch, Michelin arrived in 77 and after it left end of 84. Almost throughout, Goodyear was the default choice. I say almost, because at the beginning of 81, it was facing a lot of cost pressure, got fed up with supplying the whole field while Michelin just chose its own partners, Renault, Ferrari, etc. And so Goodyear pulled out, leaving Michelin to supply the whole grid. And then halfway through that season, Goodyear came back supplying only three teams. So it it sort of turned the tables on Michelin. Um, But then Michelin pulled out and the remainder of the 80s, much of the 90s, Goodyear was back as a standard supplier, occasional presence from Pirelli, but that was never established as a good alternative to Goodyear. It wasn't really the competitive choice. But then Bridgestone came in for ninety seven. They announced at ninety six that they were going to come in, and almost from that moment of that announcement, Goodyear was um, getting ready to pull out. It just—it was under again under a lot of cost pressure, and you got the feeling it didn't really, um, it didn't really have the stomach for a a full-on war, because it would mean, it would entail doing lots of new qualifying compounds and uh, lots of R&D to keep the development going. So I don't think that they really were um, really up for a, 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 a strong competition, in Bridgestone was very strong. It, it came in in 97, and it came with Arrows and Prost, neither of them big teams, and you could see in that year there were several races where those cars had a tire advantage. So for a company in its first year, that was highly impressive from Bridgestone and there was a bit of a scrabble from the top teams to get on them and McLaren obviously won the title on them in, in 98. So, yeah, I, d- I don't think Goodyear really wanted a, a, a tyre war. It was, it was facing a lot of cost pressure and I think, um,
0: you know, from the moment that Bridgestone announced that it was coming in, Goodyear was looking to get out. And Gary, your Jordans were on Goodyear's for 97 and, and 98. Were you ever wishing... During those years that the team had been running the Bridgestones, well, you know
1: we'd come through our Formula One uh, career with um, with Goodyear as such with Jordan. So yes, you obviously want to have the best tire, the quickest tire on the car. Um, but but as Mark says, Goodyear were the sort of loyal Formula One tire supplier that had been there, and and you know it was it was it was the right thing to to be, and um, it was the right thing to sort of continue with them. They were they were. As Mark says again they were they weren't going to throw their their hat in the ring for a tire competition. they just were going to be a tire supplier and take the, the advertising out of it they got so we would have loved to have had Bridgestones in the car. it wasn't possible um I think we had a very good relationship with goodyear um and with the tires, and we worked hard with them. but you know whenever somebody else comes in that's going to throw everything at it to to make a better tire then you 've obviously you obviously wish you were there because the black round things at the end of the day are what makes the car go faster, go slow. And if, if you've got one comp- one tire comp- competitor that's got a better one than the other one, then you want to be there with them. But you, you can't just keep changing willy-nilly every race mean. Maybe that's what they should do. Maybe there should be a, a truck outside in the paddock, <laughs> you know, with a, a bunch of tires from every manufacturer possible. And you go and choose yours on a, Thursday afternoon or something, that would make a real tire war, wouldn't it?
0: Well, I wonder how many people would choose the current Pirellis that we have uh, if if we were doing that every weekend. And it's interesting what Mark said about Goodyear almost being reluctant to get involved in the war because they kind of had no choice uh, in early 98. I remember Michael Schumacher hammering them in the first few races of that year, just constantly saying, well, McLaren are winning because they've got better tires and putting huge pressure on Goodyear to to enter into that war that they didn't really want to. Uh, We've got another tyre question relating to this era, which came from Matt Skingle, who asks, uh, what was it it that started the move to groove tyres? Why did they last so long? And what was it about them that made them a good or a bad thing for F1? I'll cover the simple part of that question, which is that they were introduced by Max Mosley as a way of slowing the cars down by reducing the size of the contact patch of the tyre. But Gary, what was it like to design and engineer a car for Grooved tyres. How, how different was the challenge compared to when you had slicks?
1: Well, just just going back to the question there, it was a very stupid thing for Formula 1, I believe. Um, Agreed. The, the whole philosophy then, at that point in time, since Ayrton Senna's accident in ninety four, was make the cars go slower. And there was a, a thought that, you know, every team will make the car go faster, so we have to counteract that every year. And Max Mosley had this harebrained idea that... Um, Basically, you know, put the grooves in it because if you actually made a tire that narrow, it would look stupid um, and you wouldn't see the grooves as such. Um, and that was one of the reasons why at the beginning, you know, people talked about having the grooves painted so that you, the color of the tire was in the groove to begin with and stuff. But they didn't want to do that because that would show up. The philosophy was to slow the cars down. Max you know, pushed his way through all the time. But on designing the car, the thing about it that was quite difficult is if you can imagine a slick tire, a slick tire sort of uh, has its contact patch on the ground. You're forcing it onto the ground, and it dissipates that cornering energy from uh, the left to the right. So it dissipates across that contact patch, depending upon the corner, depending upon the camber on the car. But it's 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 one large contact patch, that has less force on it on the inside on the outside again depending upon the forces on the car and the camber uh and with the with the groove tire it wasn't like that because you had you know whenever we had the three grooves you had four pieces of tire that were all loaded up individually and they they sort of didn't talk to each other so one of them would be carrying most of the load and then because the load got too high for that part of the tire it would give up and it would slide a little bit and then another part of the tire would pick the load up so if you could imagine riding like a, a motocross bike with a big chunky tire on the on the road, it sort of walked across the road. It didn't really understand, but it just walked across the road laterally. Um, and that, you know, that was always a big problem in the car to try and get the camber change, to try and get the load distribution. Uh, one of the most important things really, I suppose, was that you, you initially, the tire would grain badly. As it wore, it would just tear itself to pieces because those individual bits of the tire weren't capable of taking the load that you're putting into it. So they'd tear themselves off. And that's why, you know, whenever we looked at graining back in the, in the groove tire era, the graining would come, it would clear up and you keep going. Um, And you could keep going to more or less, you know, a slick. Um, And people were worried about that, obviously, because uh, again, the Michelin and and Bridgestone war was about the, the fact that if you wore the tire out, the tire would get wider, the contact patch would get bigger than the regulations allowed it to be. So it was all about. Getting the load into the tire, getting through that graining phase, getting the tire worn to be in more of a, a, a flat surface that was in more, more in contact with the road. As far as the geometry of the car was concerned, the uh, geometry of the suspension was concerned, it was just about you know trying to make sure you minimised any changes in that that geometry, quick changes. You just needed to have a fairly benign uh, tire geometry. But there was nothing you could actually do. You know, you're just putting a force, aerodynamic force, into the tire and you're getting the grip from that but the, the biggest thing for me was this walking across the road the tire you could never you could never overcome that as i say it wasn't on street you just couldn't put front wing on to stop that walking across the road it would just the tire would take off on you and um tire pressures played a big a big role in that so everything had to be a bit more right i think you might say with uh the groove tire than you, than you could get away with with the slick tire it needed to be more precise with everything but uh It was a stupid regulation and I'm so glad it disappeared as quickly as it could.
0: Yeah, me too. And uh, we've also got a question coming up later about Michelin contact patches. So we'll come back to that in a bit. But Mark, you've analysed driving styles in incredible depth during times of groove tyres and slicks. What did you make of the grooves? Uh, Gary and I have obviously said that we thought they were, were rubbish. Was there anything interesting about them from a driving challenge perspective or any drivers that were perhaps particularly well suited to them?
2: They weren't that great, as you say. It was, a, <laughs> it was an easy way for the FIA to control lap speeds, but it made made the cars less F1, if you like, to to watch. The grip was reduced it reduced the difference that a you know a driver with a big balls commitment could make. Mansell would have hated these tyres. <clears throat> Superficially, it, it made the cars look more spectacular, actually, but because it were sliding more. But it was actually much easier. It was. Everyone adapts, and within a while, they were getting some pretty impressive grip levels from them. But in terms of driving style, it, it made it a bit more specialised. I think it, drivers finding ways of getting rotation on the car because that was that had suddenly become more difficult. So, uh, as ever, the top guys found a way of doing it quicker than the others. And uh, Schumacher and Hakkinen were the standouts, but they'd have been the top drivers regardless. It was just a,
0: a slightly different task. Now, I was I wasn't particularly a fan of them. No, I think no, I think we're uh, we're in unison on that one. Uh, we've got another. Jordan 1996 related question for Gary here. So this comes back to that Melbourne conversation we had briefly. Uh, Thomas Mason asks, what were your thoughts after Martin Brundle's crash at Melbourne in 1996, especially that he was raring to go again in the T car not long after? And I have to say, Gary, before you come in, the images of Brundle running up and down the pit lane before the restart and sticking his thumb in the air, saying he's okay. uh, uh, To me, they're almost as memorable as the crash now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they are indeed. I mean, obviously whenever you have a, one of your cars there's a crash to the severity of that, you, you're thinking about lots and lots of stuff. Um, and basically that, you know, he, he obviously hit the back of somebody else's rear wheel. I think it was David Coulthard maybe, uh, and that lifted his car up in the air and it, it actually broke the front of the engine off on, on the back of the chassis, the, the front casing. So, or bits of the front casing. So, you know, it was a big impact. And obviously after the press that we've had, we'd had about the rollover bar through Ross Braun and the the daily media, um, reporting that we'd built a death trap, I was very relieved to see Martin step out of the car because obviously it could have been so easily the other way around. And, uh, that would never have been a good situation for anybody. As I said earlier, you know, the next FIA meeting, I got Ross to the side and, you know, I explained to him that we all live in a glass house here, you know, anybody that throws stones, can easily have to you know eat their words very very quickly. So please next time think a little bit more before you uh, you say too much. But yeah, Martin um, obviously got out was keen to was keen to get going again. Um, and I think the the thing that allowed him to get going was um, Sid Watkins, Professor Sid Watkins. He asked Martin where he had left his wallet before he uh, got in the car to start the race, and Martin knew where he would left his wallet. So <laughs> Sid said, "Well, you must be all right, and you haven't banged your head." Because that's the first thing you would uh, forget was where you left stuff, uh, especially Martin's wallet—and so uh, yeah, he was okay to go. But I think after a couple of laps, he decided that it was really wasn't a place to be. You know, it comes back to you—the adrenaline at that point in time gets you up and gets you going again. But it wasn't—it wasn't to be for that day. But I, you know, very thankful. Obviously, he came through it. That was the first time that people saw the rollover bar, um, as to why how it was constructed on the car, because the front fairing obviously got got removed very quickly um when it was upside down so uh yeah big shunt really relieved that he got out of it and uh and I'm glad he didn't race too far actually because you you know very easy to have another impact when your head gets confused in the Formula one car that's not the place you want to be at those sort of speeds
0: our next question is from at dh21 iniru who asks How different would it be if Adrian Newey was given a share of Williams? Can we safely say Williams would have won at least another world championship? So, Mark, Adrian has been pretty open that he wanted more of a say in the big decisions at Williams and effectively to become a partner with Frank Williams and Patrick Head. If he'd still been designing cars for them when the BMW engines arrived, what could have been possible? Oh, world
2: championships, no question. I mean, they weren't that far away as it was. I think with an Adrian Car there, something that had been steadily developed up up until that time when BMW came in. Yeah, that would have um, certainly given Ferrari much more of a fight in the early part of the two thousands, and it might have it might have led uh, us remembering that part of Formula One history instead of just complete domination by Schumacher era Ferrari. It might have, we might be remembering it for the epic fights between you know Williams and Ferrari. But um, but having said that, I don't think Adrian alone could have made. Williams' future-proof, if you like. I think it would have needed a strong guy to manage the whole thing as F1 transitioned into a more complex and and bigger thing. I think structurally, changes were still needed at the team. But yes, Adrian's cars could have staved that day off for a while, I think. Um, Adrian's not really a Ross Brawn type. He's much more specialised genius than then Rossi would take responsibility for the whole team and lead it forwards, Adrian's just a quiet, genius type. The stuff outside of the car programs from somebody else to worry about, you know, Ron Danis or Christian Horner. And I think that's what was really needed there at the time. Is, but obviously with that in combination with Adrian is what would have been needed to keep that momentum for Williams going and, and, and for it to retain that sort of form in the long term.
0: Sebastian Stefanescu has got an interesting question about V10 engines. So how could we possibly say no to that? Uh, Sebastian says, the engine variety in the early 90s fascinates me. What were the different characteristics, advantages and disadvantages of V8s, V10s and V12s? And how did V10 become standard? Gary, if I've got this right, you designed cars for all three of those engine layouts, although the Yamaha probably wasn't the most representative what a v12 could do how did you think v8 v10 and v12 stacked up
1: um yeah i mean all of them to be honest as a as a number of cylinders was never a problem it was just to get a good one of whatever you had um that was the (laughs) biggest thing to be honest and it was good v8s it was good v10s and it was good uh, v12s as far as a car packaging was concerned the v12 was a bit of a monster um in our case with the yamaha it was a very heavy monster um and and it didn't have the performance now that said you know we we made mistakes in 92 as well but the yamaha was was very unreliable um engine to engine was just a, a different dimension you know you honestly you could have the feeling to the driver and the lap time was like 100 horsepower would just come and go um so i think everybody honed in on the v10 because you, for the formula and for the engine companies again as i say you could get uh, somebody could get it right um, with a V8, and it would be a good engine. And then everybody would have to chase that down. Um, so having all the different engines available to Formula One was never a good solution. It could be a very, very cost, costly solution for the for the team, for the for the engine manufacturer, for everybody. So I think it was right to, to focus on the V10. It was a nice compromise between the V8 and the V12. Um, and as we saw, you know, the engine RPM. You know, it increased dramatically once the focus was there. The V10s got up to something like 20,000 RPM, which was, you know, just a, s- a sewing machine going flat tack. It was really impressive. So there was never a right. You just needed to be with the best engine. But I think the V10 solution was uh, the most practical for, for everybody and everything. And and I'm, I'm glad they went that route personally at that point in time.
0: So am I, because it gave us a podcast name. And uh, going back to that uh, Ferrari 96 episode or 95, 96 episode we did, we talked there about the fact that John Barnard was at Ferrari, who are obviously all about the V12s, and he'd been trying to get them to look into V8s and V10s for for a long time. But let's move on. Mark Rue uh, Widgetunga asks, are there any parallels between George Russell moving to partner Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes to Felipe Massa's move to partner Michael Schumacher at Ferrari? Was Massa considered hot property back in 2005 in the same way George is now?
2: Uh, I'd say no, not quite. Uh, He was talented, no question, but he was also a bit wild in his early days. I recall him spinning about five times in the Sauber at Silverstone once. He (laughs) he was quick, but he didn't look the full package in the way George does today. So uh, Felipe came in the year after Alonso, Kimi and Montoya. He wasn't considered as hot a property as those guys but he was definitely somebody that was on the up and was you know had a lot of promise and in a Ferrari you you, you wouldn't have been surprised or oh, you would have been surprised had he not been able to win races he was he was clearly good but I don't think he was the the sort of hot property that um, George is considered today no he wasn't quite considered like that
0: he was my younger sister's favorite driver after that first season because she liked the guy who was always spinning and crashing. <laughs> uh, Gary, uh, Dave Musson has got uh, the question that you were mentioned at the start about a Jordan that probably doesn't get as much discussion as it deserves. Dave's question is the the Jordan 194 was the car that got me hooked on Formula 1, but it's hard to find out much about it. Did it carry similarities to the 192 and the 193 cars? Why doesn't it get mentioned much? And was it an underrated Jordan?
1: Oh, there's lots of reasons for everything, Dave. Um, <clears throat> basically, you know, 1991, the 191 Jordan, um, it cost a lot more than than Jordan thought it than we at Jordan thought it would do to run a season and build Formula 1 cars and stuff. So basically, by the end of 1991, we were more or less broke. So 92 and 93 were about trying to survive. We got the Yamaha deal because it came with some money. Um, and uh, then, you know, the Sassel appeared and so on and so forth. So it was about doing the best we could. The The 92 car was a completely new car because we'd started designing it during 91, before we realized that we were broke. Um, but the, the thing was that, um, it, it just. It wasn't a good car. We had a, the, the performance of the car wasn't bad when it was right, but the engine didn't work very well. We had a problem with the gearbox and it took us quite a long time to get on top of that. So the 93 car was then a carryover of that chassis with Brian Hart's V10. Now whenever whenever I first went to see Brian Hart's V10, it was one engine, dyno bound, um, you know, pipes everywhere and stuff. So it wasn't a car, an engine you could put in the car. And when we decided to, to change from Yamaha to that engine, that, you know, that's, that's the condition it was in. It was a V10. It was a lovely little engine, but it was never had been built to, to go in a car or never had been assembled to go in a car yet. It was always a dyno, a dyno engine. Um, so ninety ninety three was a survival year and 94. Then we put our heart and soul into the car because Brian had got through his teeth and problems with the engine. Uh, we felt we had learned quite a bit again for formula one, the structure of the team was getting a bit bigger. Um, so we could cope with actually racing and designing and building a new car. So 94 was a car that you know we put I put my heart and soul into it. um and I think everybody at Jordan did as well because we needed to make a step forward. And we started the season I think very very well with it. I had a Ribbons was on pole. Uh, Ribbons was uh, was on the podium, sorry. Um and you know a third place finish for a Jordan at that point in time was something fairly big. Uh then obviously the the Emilia the weekend happened. Um even before that, you know Eddie Irvine got banned for three races because of his indiscretions in, uh, in Brazil. So it, the start of the season was pretty tough, um, but the car was reasonably successful. Um, and then we had, as I say, Emila, Rubens had a massive accident in the, uh, f- the first qualifying on the, on the Friday. Then we had Roland Ratzenberger killed on the Saturday, and we had Ayrton Senna killed on the Sunday. And that threw Formula One into turmoil. Um, there was changes going on, you know, every race meeting to be honest with the car. So we never got to show the true potential of what the one nine four would have been. But as I said earlier, with the rollover bar stuff, I always, I always welcomed change. And whenever we were a ref, I think it was testing and, um, we got the news through that they were going to shorten the diffuser by 250 millimeters or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, all the rest of the teams were fighting and battling with us. And and we got the floor of the car and got the jigsaw out and cut 250 millimetres off and put it back on again and went out and seen what would happen with it. So we reacted to the situation as that, that season progressed as best we could. And the, the whole progression of that season was to cut, you know, reduce the downforce of the cars, reduce the cornering speeds. There was chicanes being put everywhere, straw bales, tyres, you name it. And uh, we weren't, you know, as big as other people, I suppose we didn't have to go and ask anybody, could we do this? We just did it. And that made us a, a bit more reactive. So part of the success of the 194 came from that. Um, but the car, I think, was better probably than the season allowed us to see because of, of the changes that were going on all the time. It was, it was a good little car. It was a good car to drive. Um, and the, the drivers liked it, basically. It was, it was something you could get into and 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 you know, get the welly down and, and get get performance out of it. Uh, and it didn't bite you. It wasn't a car that sort of uh, was nervous to drive or anything. It had good, solid, straightforward downforce. So I'm glad it made an impression on you, Dave, because uh, it made an impression on me. It was my sort of second car as such, I would call the, the
0: 191, then the 194 was the second car I really put my heart and soul yeah, into. good choice there from Dave. Mark, there's an interesting question for you here from David Shankle. Uh, he says, I enjoy Mark's writing and respect his opinion. I was surprised a while back that he stated in a reply to a comment on an article of his, Alain Prost would not be in his all-time top 10. He'd definitely be in my top 10, probably top five. So I guess the question is, where would Mark rank Prost and why? Oh, we've got to be careful with this one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, all the fans have all got their own heroes and we're all sort of impressed by different things. And Prost got a very loyal following. And look, there's no question, he's one of the greats, I'm not saying otherwise, and I certainly wouldn't put him very far outside of any notional top ten. He was a, an amazing combination of speed, technique, guile, and he was a total operator as well, out of the car. But for me, uh, championship points, they're just arbitrary measures, something to provide a narrative for the outside world. So there's a title battle to, to, you know, to be entertained by. They're, they're, they're not the absolute arbiters of the greatness of a driver. Who decides what the, the numerical difference is between a first and a second place? It's just a made-up tabulation. So if you, 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 like, take Prost two seasons alongside Senna at McLaren, and forget the point system, they were in far the best cars. So it was, if one absolutely trounced the other one, the other one still only got three points less. So just, let's look at how many times one outperformed the other, man, man against man. And in the races where it's possible to make a fair comparison, taking our mechanicals, etc., Senna beat Prost something like 17 times to seven. In qualifying, the stat is 28-4. By an average around half a second. By that measure, Senna absolutely roasted Prost, and I don't think any of the real greats would have been outperformed by anyone to that extent. You, Jim Clark or Jochen Rindt or Gilles Villeneuve, Michael Schumacher. For me, performance trumps all, and I'm less impressed by someone who just measures out all the elements in a clever way, and that's that's definitely a skill, and it's um, one I got huge respect for, but it. Doesn't inspire me. It's not a very inspirational thing. So that that's why it's such a personal choice of who your top
0: drivers are. That's a fascinating answer. Good uh, good description. Hopefully hopefully David uh, is satisfied with that one. Uh, Jay Menon asks, what are your thoughts on Juan Pablo Montoya's time in F one? Do you think he would have flourished in a different environment other than Williams or McLaren? Now, Mark, we've spoken in the past about some of Montoya's traits that maybe meant he didn't get the best out of himself consistently enough in F1. So let's focus on that specific element about the teams he drove for. Do you think there was another team on the grid that might have been able to get more out of him? No. I think
2: think his character traits were so sort of full flavoured and his personality so sort of intuitive and dismissive of any other way than his he'd have had much the same career anyway. He, actually, I think he was better suited to Williams than to Ron Dennis era McLaren. And I'd say of the top teams of that time, he was probably in as close to an ideal environment for his personality as it was possible to get at Williams. It was a, it was a bit looser, is was a bit more informal, it was a bit volatile sometimes, but that was fine by him. He did his best stuff in volatility, an ambush he couldn't have been tamed into something that was able to access all his talent all the time. He just isn't, he's not wired up like that. He's, he's attention spans not long enough for one thing. He's, he's just a free spirit.
0: And that's why he's so popular among all the questions and comments we get. We get so many requests for more Montoya episodes. So we'll find a way to do some more, but make sure you go and check out our Montoya 2001 episode because yeah, the whole thing's devoted to him. Uh, Gary, Matthias Forsland asks if you remember dealing with his dad in the late 1990s on a project to display dashboard information via a display on the driver's visor, similar to the technology used by fighter pilots. Matthias thinks the people behind the project met with you and even used one of Ralph Schumacher's helmets to try it out. So, do you have any recollection of that? Well, yeah,
1: I do have a vague memory of it. To be honest, I, I can't say, Matthias. I remember it was your dad that I met with, but I know we were pursuing something of that nature through that that period in time, um, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, or whatever it was. Um, and it was, you know, it was this heads-up display, and, and actually the initial thing all started uh, at the beginning of ninety-seven because when we got to the first race in Australia. With the 197, we'd, we'd done a load of testing in one thing or another. Um, everything, you know, the car was going okay, everything was done. But then whenever we got to um, Australia, Ralph couldn't get out of the car. He, he, in the, fire, in the 10 seconds that the FIA required you to get out of the car, he, he got his knees, his knees would catch on the dash. Um, and he did this had happened because of, we had a seat, then he modified the seat and one thing another, so suddenly, you know, nobody had really done, retested the test, you know, just before we went to Australia and suddenly he couldn't get out. So we, we spent a very anxious night modifying and repositioning the dash on the car to try and get his knees past it. And end, we got it made acceptable type thing. So it was okay. But that sparked the fire of saying, you know, why do we need the dash there? Um, there, could we get rid of something? And that's whenever we started pursuing the, the heads up display a little bit just just from that same point of view, you know, so it exists, the technology exists, why aren't we using that sort of stuff? Um, but I, 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 it never went as far as actually doing it, running it in a car. I know we, we had uh, some visuals in a, in a visor that we would, um, they would test it in the workshop and put up and saw whether it you know, affected your sight because it's very close to you. That's the problem with the visor, having it on the visor. It's very close to you. So your field of definition has to change quite dramatically. And that was... At that point in time, that was the reason we decided to to step away from it a little bit. It needed a slightly different technology where it could project it, maybe further forward um, somehow. But we never uh, we never pursued it any further than that. So uh, I don't think anybody uses anything of that nature. Now there may be some of the teams with little lights or something in the visor to catch the corner of your eye. But I um, I don't know what they're really up to. But I don't really remember your father, Matthias. But uh, thanks for for uh, writing in and. and um, remembering it because it's, it's it's funny how the the steps in life you go through as you do cars, I mean, there's just so much stuff goes on around you and there's so many good ideas that get dismissed and that's obviously one of them because I think it still would be a, a very good thing if it could be done correctly.
0: We often get questions and requests to do an episode on the tyre ruling in late 2003 that worked against Michelin and favoured Ferrari and Bridgestone. We will definitely do a full episode on that weekend in the future, but for now, let's let's quickly tackle it here. Mark, we had questions from Sebastiano Russo and Fernando Morsillo about this. Asking, how much do you think the changes Michelin were required to make to their tyres from the Italian Grand Prix onwards swung the title race in favour of Ferrari? And would Montoya or Raikkonen have won the title without that ruling? Well, it definitely had an adverse effect.
2: It took Michelin away from its development programme at a crucial stage late in the season. and uh, had to redesign its tyre. I mean, an interpretation of the regs that um, that hadn't been made before. So whether that was a correct interpretation or not, I, I you know, um, Gary would probably be better qualified to say, but it was definitely an off-track political assault from Ross Braun and Ferrari. It was like a move on the battlefield, if you like, that helped Ferrari win it. Um, but pre-season, Ferrari had been screwed by the fueled-up qualifying regs, which was a Williams-inspired um, development. So... They're all just blows on the battlefield. they all fair in love and war, really. Um, would Kimi tyre of? have won it? Yeah, maybe, because they came close as it was, so quite possibly, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, just one of those things, that you can relate it back to this year even uh, in Formula 1 <coughs> with Red Bull and Mercedes, you know. If, if you can't do more yourself, then the best thing you can do is try and get the other team to do less. And that's really what all this flexible rear wing stuff and running with you know fuel sensors or that's all that stuff is about. Is trying to make sure the other guys aren't focusing on developing that they're they're having to focus on coming up with solutions to a given problem that another team has given them. And that was what you know Ross Brown and Bridgestone did. They brought it to uh, the FIA's attention that this tire width was um, was. was Changing the rate was uh, getting bigger than the regulations allowed for was the tyre wear. So that meant that Michelin had to go off and do something instead of focusing on making it better. They had to just make it comply, uh, and that meant that Bridgestone could stand still, and that uh, Michelin wouldn't have the opportunity to overcome them. So, yeah, six of one half does them another. But you always try to do that with your team that you're nearest competitive with. Try and find some reason to to throw them in the in the mire, and they have to uh, get out of it.
0: Yeah, that's the short version. We'll do we'll do the long version another time and Gary and Mark will probably join us for that as well. Gary, the next question is about a famous missed opportunity for Jordan. Luke Dempsey asks, what could have happened if Fissy Keller and Ralph Schumacher hadn't collided at the 1997 Argentinian Grand Prix? Given Ralph still managed to finish third, was more than that possible if they'd both had a clean race to the end?
1: Well, look, the first thing would be my blood pressure would probably be better. <laughs> You know, they are, they were two drivers, um, same time in their career, um, very competitive with each other, probably too competitive with each other. So you don't mind them trying, but you know, the most important thing when you've got two drivers again is they respect each other and, you know, physically made a little mistake when at one corner, Ralph saw the, the opportunity and took a dive for it and it didn't come off. Do I think we would have done better than third? At that point in time, third was pretty good for us. I would think that there's a good chance that both of them could have stood in the podium. I don't know what steps they'd have been on, but there's a, a pretty decent chance they could have stood in the podium. But the biggest thing it did really was it it built a war between the two of them for the rest of the season. You know, instead of having a working relationship of any sort, um, they, they they fought with each other. You know, they wouldn't come into a driver debrief and be open. They'd have hidden stuff. And their their own individual engineers sort of joined the, their driver, which is what they do. You know, you're a... You're a two a twosome, your engineer and your driver is, is together. So a physics engineer and, and him would keep secrets away from from Ralph. Um, and those that's a, one thing that sort of breaks the team down quite a lot because unless you can work together and build a path that is is taking you forward against the competition, and that's the other teams as the competition, then and you need you need every other team's got two cars, you need two cars doing that as well. And that's really what hurt us that year more than anything else was the fact that we, we never really got the team to work as one. And uh, it was very difficult to pull together. So I think not only the, the race in Argentina has an effect on the race in Argentina, but it has really an effect for the whole season.
0: We've got a couple of 1999 related questions next, so we'll split them between you both. Uh, and Mark, we'll come to the, the question you mentioned earlier from Tarun Luthor first. Uh, who asks, would Michael Schumacher have won the title in 99 if not for his accident? And who do you think was better, Mika Hakkinen or Michael? I mean, I think probably everyone would be in agreement that Michael would have won that championship in 99. I assume that's what you think as well, Mark. And and what do you think of the last part of that question? Yeah, I think I'm sure Michael was
2: on his way to the title. I mean, Eddie Irvin almost won it in, in in the same car. and Yeah, so I think we can assume that Michael was going to do it. Um who was better? I, I think overall, it's probably Michael. He's more complete. But I think who would be faster through a very marginal fast corner? Probably Micker. Who would better get the car to work in a way that got the rotation going better on a slow corner? Probably Michael. In, you know, very closely matched in the car. But interestingly, uh, Jock Clear, who worked with Michael in his latter days at Mercedes, he made the observation that Michael's whole motivation came from a fear that someone might actually be able to drive a car faster than him. He said Michael had told him this. Michael had told him that, you know, he, in his first career, that was what he, he was worried that they might be somewhat able to do it better than him. And therefore, he had to do everything in his power to ensure he could beat that person by having a better team, better technical understanding, better engineer, better tire deal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just preparation. And that's what I mean by and being a much fuller performer. But in terms of just the stuff in the car, Hakken was absolutely the one who caused Michael to think that he might not actually be the fastest guy out there. And Hakan is is one of the fastest everyone drivers I've ever, ever been, in my opinion. Yeah,
0: one of the many reasons that Michael respected Mika. And we discussed that with Mika in uh, in the, the Spa 2000 episode. But we'll stick with 1999 because we've got a question from Dan Gore about Ferrari's brief exclusion from the 1999 Malaysian Grand Prix. Dan asks, how and why was the Ferrari disqualification from Malaysia 1999 overturned on appeal? Was the appeal result quite as cynical as I recall at the time in terms of keeping the championship open for Suzuka? He also asks, why were Ferrari running something that seemed very likely to get picked up in scrutineering? Was this an innocent oversight or did they believe they'd found a loophole? in the regulations. Before Gary comes in to give us a a technical minds perspective on it, uh, we can give Ross Braun's side of this story uh, because it wouldn't be an episode to bring back V10s if we didn't quote someone's book. So in Braun's book, Total Composition, uh, written in conjunction with Adam Parr, he said of Malaysia 99, the barge boards were found to be illegal and that was a misunderstanding by a design engineer. He intended it to be like it was, so you could argue it was intentional, but none of us knew they were on the car. None of us had noticed they were on the car, so the people that did the vetting and the inspection process and all that stuff hadn't found the error in the engineer's understanding. I got on the phone and I asked Rory Byrne what has happened. They went away to study the drawings, and lo and behold, there was an error, a misunderstanding in the design, and somehow it had got through the system. And talking about the appeal, Ross said, In studying the regulations, we realized there was an interpretation that you could present where they weren't illegal. Everyone knew how the regulation was applied, but the wording of the regulation, the intention of the regulation and the application of the regulation may be different things. And Ross also said that the FIA came to Ferrari's wind tunnel to witness a test of the barge boards to show that even in their illegal state, there was no performance advantage, which supported Ferrari's case that they screwed up. So, Gary, you had a competitive car in 99 with with Stuart. What did you make of all this fuss in Malaysia about Ferrari's barge boards and those comments there from, from Ross effectively explaining it?
1: Well, what I've always found from um, from the big teams is that there's a junior engineer out there somewhere that will get the rap. Um very very quickly, and this is just the same same example. You know, mistakes are mistakes, that's for sure. You know, engine guy made a mistake, and suddenly, sorry, the engine isn't a three point five liter V ten; it's a four liter V ten. But that was just a mistake. You know, we drilled the holes too big in the for the pistons. But the the bars boards themselves, I I don't believe I could see a reason for there being a, a, a benefit from it. And I'll come back to that in a second. However, um, the the infringement was basically that the. You know, when you look from underneath the car, you have to be able just to see one surface within a certain height. The barge board was, was sitting at a bit of an angle. So the top of it was either wider or narrower, I'm not quite sure, uh, than the than the bottom of it. So in effect, you could see the whole, whole of one side of the barge board, the inside or the outside. I believe it was the inside. Um, I can understand, yeah, the top bracket being a little bit shorter than it should have been or something. But those are the sort of things you've got to be on top of. Those are the sort of things that, you know, that shouldn't happen. And especially in a team like Ferrari, it shouldn't happen. So the problem was that really in Malaysia, the the car was scrutineered, it was found illegal, then the car was taken away. And so all that's gone. All that then becomes just a mythical thing. You know, how much was it illegal? Um, How do you reproduce that? The car is stripped down, it's in Maranello, whatever. Um, and so the, the appeal goes through and it's all okay. Now going back to the point I made earlier, you know, whenever you talk about these barge boards, they're a, an airflow turning device. And then there's that generates vortices, all those corners that you see at the back of it. I mean, the, the barge boards on the Ferrari in that time were a fairly simple thing. They were a big flat, a big, uh, radius sort of turning vein. But how you shed the vortices off that makes them work more efficiently or not efficiently. So by having them at an angle, there's a tendency for the flow to go over that top trailing edge corner, which sets up a different set of vortices. So if they were able to use that in some way, then very simply you could say it was an advantage. The fact that they say they did some wind tunnel tests and couldn't show the advantage, that would be very, very easy to do. Um, because you just don't do it in the correct manner. Um, It's all about detail. You look at the barge boards of a current Formula One car, the detail of it is horrendous. How they get one car to be similar to another car, I have no idea, because the tooling and jigging to get all that stuff in the right place must be horrendous. Um, And it's the same with the Ferrari barge boards back then. My personal opinion is, it wasn't correct. Um, A junior engineer's mistake, but it was illegal at that point in time in that race, and it shouldn't have. Uh, it shouldn't have been dropped in appeal. Our
0: next question is about Flavio Briatore from Aldus. Uh, Mark Aldus says Flavio Briatore has been talked uh, has talked at length about how the FIA and the other teams did everything in their power to stop him from succeeding. And I'm fascinated by how he shook up the establishment. But what impact did his arrival have on F1? And was he good or bad for F1? Oh, I think he's probably,
2: on balance, good for F1. Everyone thrives on colour and controversy, and he, he brought both of those. Uh, but he was different to anyone who had succeeded in F1 before. He came from a very untypical, non racing background. and He saw things differently, saw, thought outside the box a bit, and he was smart enough to leave the technical parts to his lieutenants, and he didn't interfere. But he rubbed the Ron Dennis's of the F1 world up the wrong way, and Max Mosley too. but... Bernie loved him, and, and so so do many of those who work for him even to this day. They, they still only have good things to say about how good a, a boss he was. Um, some say he had questionable morals in business sometimes, but uh, you know, so does F1, so does the wider world, so I'm not going to stand in judgment of that. I think, um, yeah, he's obviously involved in a lot of the, the sport's most controversial moments, but... Um, but whether that's good or bad for F1, I think on balance that's good.
0: I think overall he was he was good for F1. I, th- I think it was it was helpful at that time as F1's popularity was booming in the 90s to to have somebody who perhaps saw it from a different perspective. And whether Flavio was doing it deliberately or not, or whether he was trying to wind people up, I always thought that he was trying to look at it maybe as as a spectacle and, and look at it from the fans' perspective sometimes, not just an engineer's perspective. But let's move on to the final question of the show. And with Gary here, it's only right that we get one in about the Jordan 191. Gary Godders 92 says, having listened to the Beyond the Grid podcast with Bertrand Gachot, and that's that's a show that we always like to shout out here. uh, Gachot recalled the Hungarian Grand Prix of 91 where he and Gary switched the front and rear springs around, and this is what led to him setting the fastest lap and claiming he would have then set pole at Spa, a claim he never got to back up. My question is whether the details of this are true, and do you think he would have set pole at Spa?
1: Well, I'll deal with the last part first. Um, Setting pole at Spa is is never an easy task, but I think Bertram was one of these drivers who was very, very good and fast uh, corners, vast, stable corners, um, and from the very first time he drove the car, he recognised its true traits. That you know, the, the braking stability and that high-speed corner balance was very, very good. The car had a, a tendency for low-speed understeer because we had a mono shock on the front of it, which means you have one shock absorber and one spring, and it was as far as roll was concerned, it was rigid. Uh, and on the rear, there was two springs and no anti-roll bar, so the car was. The car's role was defined by the front suspension. And we did that originally in the design because, you know, we were going to circuits we never even seen. We had a very powerful, a much more powerful engine than anything I'd ever been involved with as far as uh, putting traction is concerned. And I had a philosophy. It doesn't matter how much power we get from the engine, unless we can put it all to to the ground and get good traction, then it's a waste of time. So we went for the monoshock, which then leads me on to the second question. You couldn't take the front spring and put it on the back because there was two springs in the back and there was one in the front. Now, you could take the spring rate and change it for sure. But going back to, to Hungary, um, you know, Bertram in qualifying, when you had the, the qualifying tyres on, he would um, turn one. He never made the apex in turn one once uh, in all of the qualifying tyres for two over two days because, he you know, you arrive at that corner expecting lots and lots of grip and you didn't have it. Uh, and the tires took time to to get to work like they do nowadays. But if you had the tire working in the first corner, then the last two corners of the lap would be bad. So he never quite come to terms with running qualifying tires. Uh, Come the end of the race in Hungary, obviously at that point in time, you were starting with a full fuel load of 150 kilograms of fuel, something like that, 160 kilograms. And come the end of the race, obviously the car's a lot lighter. And Bertram and we put on a, a fresh set of tires, uh, soft compound tires, and he got the lap record, which is, yeah, that's, you wouldn't expect that much more, I suppose you might call it, but I don't ever recall trying to fit the front spring on the back of the car or the back springs in front of the car, which is, would be impossible to do. Uh, spring rate, yes, but I don't even recall that to be honest, because, you know, it wasn't one of those sort of things you weren't working in that sort of area. You weren't working that close with it all. So, uh, I don't think the spring thing was correct. I think the fresh tyres did it. And do I think Bertrand would have been on pole in Spa? There was a chance because, you know, it was his home race and the car was very good in those circumstances, as Michael Schumacher showed.
0: Yeah, good to bust a myth, even if it's one that hasn't last, hasn't been around for very long because Bertrand only did that uh, podcast very recently. And uh, I, I was I was puzzled by that claim as well. because I thought, well, yes, he got the fastest lap, but it wasn't like he was running in the points or anything. So if the car was that good he'd have maybe been a bit more competitive over the rest of the weekend. So uh, thanks for the dose of truth there, Gary. We'll leave it there for part one of taking your questions. Massive thanks to Mark and Gary for your time. We'll see you both again in series five. And thank you to everyone who has submitted a question. We have one more episode to come then and we'll pile through as many more questions as we can before we bring the curtain down on our fourth series.